What if the book of Acts didn't exist? After John's gospel, you had Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Well, all kinds of questions would swirl through your head. How did the news of events on the outskirts of the empire work their way all the way to the capital city of Rome? What caused the church to grow in just a few short years from a smattering of timid, fearful Jews huddled away in Jerusalem to a full-fledged Gentile church living openly in the heart of the empire? And even more basic questions would be asked. What's a church? Who was Paul? Why a letter? Well, the book of Acts answers these questions plus much, much more. Acts traces the expansion of Christianity across the Mediterranean rim, from the Jewish capital of Jerusalem to the Gentile capital of Rome. It explains how the Jewish Messiah became Lord of the Gentiles. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gathered his disciples and he told them to go and make other disciples of all the nations. The book of Acts tells us how they did it. And it's crucial that we study this book, for there has never been a more successful period of church history. Just 30 years after the resurrection, Paul told the Colossians that the gospel had gone out into all the world. And the success was without the 21st century help of technology and transportation. The only media was pen and parchment. The church had little money and no marketing. At the time, there was no such thing as a church building. The modern church desperately needs to recapture the power of the early church. Twister was the title of a 1996 blockbuster movie. It was about a group of storm chasers, tornado chasers. A reason for the film's success was its vivid and lifelike special effects. Well, shortly after its release, the movie was showing at a drive-in theater in Kansas City. And one night during the movie, a real-life tornado swept through the theater, ripping apart the screen, destroying the concession area. Talk about some realistic special effects. I bring this up to direct our prayers. For over the next few months, we'll be studying the outpouring of God's Spirit and the growth of the early church why not pray for God to bring to life what's on our screen? The same Holy Spirit lives in us. Let's ask for an Acts sequel. Well, the book begins, the former account I made, O Theophilus. Luke writes both his gospel and Acts to a friend named Theophilus. Now, when this man was born, the doctor shouted, that's the awfulest looking baby I've ever seen. And the name stuck. Theophilus. Actually, the name means friend of God. He may have been a government official or an ally of Christianity. Now, Luke was a doctor who traveled with Paul as his personal physician. Luke was also a historian. And during the two years that Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea... Luke may have combed the Galilee and Samaria and even Jerusalem, interviewing eyewitnesses, researching the gospel and acts. Often in Roman times, a rich benefactor would bankroll a work of art or history. Theophilus may have been the man who sponsored Luke's work. If so, what a contribution. 
In heaven, Theophilus may be introduced as the guy who funded us a quarter of the New Testament. Well, verse 1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days in speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, the former account of all that Jesus began to do and teach was Luke's gospel. But Jesus never stopped doing and teaching, for he rose from the dead and he continued his work by his spirit through his apostles. The four gospels record just a few of the post-resurrection appearances of the risen Lord. But Luke assures us here that Jesus provided many infallible proofs. He made sure that the evidence of his resurrection was so undeniable and so irrefutable, so clear and so conclusive that none of the disciples would ever doubt its reality. And not surprisingly, none of them ever did. Well, verse 4 tells us, And being assembled together with them, he, that is Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, in the Old Testament, Moses was given the biggest babysitting job in history. You remember this. For 40 years, he cared for 2 million juveniles. And he needed God's help to do it. But rather than deposit his spirit solely on Moses, God poured out his spirit on 70 elders. And this decentralization of spiritual power concerned Moses' apprentice, Joshua. Joshua thought, what if the common folks start thinking that they too can possess God's power? And I love Moses' reply in Numbers chapter 11. He said, oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Moses wanted all God's people to possess the power of the Holy Spirit. And Moses' wish became the promise of the Father. Throughout the Old Testament, from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to Joel, God predicted predicted the day when he would pour out his Spirit on all his people. Now the time is near. His disciples are to wait in Jerusalem until they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here's where terminology can trip us up. On the subject of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, some of our Baptist brothers, they point to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. In other words, when a person becomes a Christian, they are initiated by the spirit into the body of Christ. And thus, the folks in the Baptist camp claim that the baptism of the Spirit is synonymous with conversion, but not so fast. You know, terms often have multiple meanings. Take our English word bear. It's a grizzly. It's what you do when you carry a load or birth a child. 
or endure the heat. The word bear has lots of definitions. And likewise, the Greek word baptizo has multiple meanings. On the one hand, it means to initiate. This shows up in English. When a rookie quarterback enters his first game and gets sacked, we like to say that he had his baptism into the NFL. But the word can also mean to dip or to engulf or to immerse. And thus, when a person is baptized with water, they are submerged or dipped into the water. So, when Paul, in his letters, used the word baptism, he's referring to initiation. With Paul, to be baptized by the Spirit is to become part of the body of Christ. But when Luke and Jesus and Peter use the term, they're speaking of being immersed in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here in Acts chapter 1, Luke will refer to this experience in, with the Holy Spirit in five ways. As baptism, as reception, he comes upon, he feels, he is poured out. My point is, don't get caught up in the semantics and miss the dynamic. Call it what you want, but we all need to be drenched in Holy Spirit power. And then verse 6 continues. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Boy, the disciples, once again, are focused on Israeli politics. When will Jesus set up his physical throne? They still haven't grasped that he first reigns and rules spiritually in human hearts. Well, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. They were preoccupied with God's plan for the future because they lacked his power for the present. They'll better better understand God's purposes when the Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. And then verse 8, Jesus says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Here in verse 8, Jesus provided his disciples a power, a purpose, and a plan. The power is his spirit. Our purpose is to be witnesses, and the plan is to spread out from Jerusalem to all the earth. And verse 8 becomes an outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 will describe the outreach to Jerusalem. In chapters 8 and 9, the gospel goes to Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 10 through 28, it's taken to the end of the earth. But to fulfill a grand plan, power is needed. And that's why Jesus promises God's spirit will come upon his disciples with supernatural might. In John chapter 14, remember, Jesus said that the spirit would be with us and would be in us. Before we're saved, the Spirit is with us. He convicts us of sin. He points us to the Savior. When we believe in Christ, the Spirit comes to dwell in us. He takes up residence in our hearts. But there is a third experience that we can have with the Holy Spirit. It's when the Spirit comes upon us, He will engulf us with His love and His power. I heard of a carnival cruise that had a fire on board the ship. 
It lost its power. Suddenly, the toilets wouldn't flush. The AC didn't work. Food couldn't be cooked. For the 4,000-plus passengers and crew, their cruise became a nightmare. And everyone at Carnival Cruises learned a strategic lesson. When the power goes out, the party is over. And the same is true for a Christian. With no power, we're dead in the water. Life gets hard. It's not cool. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. But not all Christians have his power upon their lives. Corey Ten Boone once put it, it takes two batteries to energize a flashlight. The first battery is regeneration, the new birth. And the second battery is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian needs the power of God's Spirit. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? Now for Jesus, his ascension was a reunion. Like an astronaut after a long voyage re-entering the earth's atmosphere, Jesus is now returning to his home in heaven. But for the disciples, his ascension was bewildering. All kinds of questions now are swirling through their head. And at the top of their list, what's next? Jesus had overcome his enemies. He had just risen. Why is he leaving us now? And yet the angels assured them, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, you'll see him again. He'll come a second time. Yet in the meantime, there's work to do. And the problem was the disciples just weren't ready. Now they'd seen Jesus. They had heard Jesus. They had learned from Jesus. But they still lacked power. We need to understand, we can go to school. We can have experiences. We can even be sincere. But if you lack the power of his spirit, you won't be the effective witness that you can be. The disciples need the baptism of the spirit. And so Jesus tells them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. It was about a half mile walk back to the upper city. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. This was probably the room that also hosted the Last Supper. Tradition says that it was at the house of John Mark. And Luke tells us who was there. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Eleven in all, the one missing disciple was Judas the betrayer. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. There was also a group of women there. Women who were loyal to Jesus. Mary of Bethany certainly was one of them. Salome, Mary Magdalene, there were others. Luke also mentions Jesus' family and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
Notice his mother Mary is now a follower of her own son. And I think you'll notice too that no one in the early church treated Mary with any kind of undue reverence or or veneration or worship. She wasn't over the disciples. She was just among them. She was a fellow follower. And it's also noteworthy to find his brothers in the upper room. You remember back in John 7 verse 5, we were told his brothers did not believe in him. But it was the resurrection that opened their minds and changed their hearts and turned brothers into believers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. Peter was definitely the leader of the group. There were 120 disciples gathered there in that upper room. And Peter said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Not a pretty picture. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, and he quotes Psalm 69, verse 25, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, And then he quotes Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office. So the parcel where Judas died will be barren land forever, and Judas will be succeeded among the twelve by another. Now, there are a couple of points to clarify before we move forward. First, Matthew 27, verse 7 says that the chief priests paid for the potter's field. But since it was the money that they gave to Judas, in Acts chapter 1, Luke says that Judas made the purchase. Also, Matthew 27 verse 5 tells us that Judas hung himself, while Luke says that he fell and perforated his abdomen so that his guts oozed out. If you put the two accounts together, Judas must have hung himself. Perhaps the limb snapped, his body fell on the rocks, and his bloated bowels exploded. The point, though, is that Peter here is taking his cues from the Scripture. He's reading the Psalms. And in Psalm 109, he realizes that Judas needs to be replaced. And this is where the church today needs to be getting its guidance. From the Bible. From the Scripture. Well, verse 21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, we need to appoint a new apostle, Peter says. Now notice Peter's qualifications for apostle. First was longevity. An apostle needed to be someone who had followed Jesus from the start for the whole three and a half years of his ministry. And then second, he needs to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. 
And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, no doubt, Peter was correct to replace Judas. But again, his impulsive nature may have caused him to jump the gun and select the wrong guy. Understand, casting lots was basically a roll of the dice. That's what it was. After the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, casting lots is never used again in the New Testament as a means of discerning God's will. From Pentecost onward, the church totally relies on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's my opinion that Matthias was not God's choice to be the 12th apostle. On the road to Damascus, Jesus will choose Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. But that's my opinion. You form yours. Chapter 2 begins. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, Pentecost is the Greek word for 50th. It was the 50th day or the seventh Sunday after Passover. Pentecost was the Jewish feast of weeks or harvest. It occurred at the end of May after the spring harvest. And in the temple, the priest would take two sheaves of wheat. He would lift them up and he would present them to God, which was fitting symbolism for at Pentecost, God began a harvest of souls that we call the church age, which includes two bundles, by the way, both Jews and Gentiles. Also, the Jews observed the Feast of Pentecost as the anniversary of the giving of the law. The two sheaves were also symbolic of the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. And again, it's fitting that on the day the law was given to Israel, on the same day, God poured out his grace on the church. Interestingly, Exodus 32 records that on the day Moses received the law, 3,000 of the sons of Levi fell in judgment for their sins. In contrast, though, at the Feast of Pentecost, when God pours out the Spirit of grace, 3,000 souls get saved. Then we're told in verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now the Greek word spirit or pneuma, it means wind. And as with the wind, you can't predict or chart the Holy Spirit's movements. He has a will of his own. All we can do is trust him and lift our sails in his direction. You know, an albatross is a bird that has a wingspan of 12 feet but its body weight makes it too heavy to take off on its own. It becomes dependent on the wind. It needs the wind to blow or it's grounded. But once it gets up in the air, it can stay airborne for a long, long time. It stays airborne by gliding. And boy, can it glide. Scientists once strapped a radio transmitter to one albatross, and after 30 days and 9,000 miles, the battery died, but the bird was still in the air. An albatross can stay out at sea for a long, long time. And a Christian 
is like an albatross. We get our power from the wind. We ride the wind. We're grounded without the spirit. Our wings are faith. And the way we soar is to stretch out and catch a gust of God's spirit. But along with the wind, there also came the fire. For then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. These little flickers of a flame appeared and one set upon each of them. Now, in the Old Testament, when Moses dedicated the tabernacle, God sent fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice. It occurred again when Solomon dedicated the temple. Now, a new spiritual temple is being dedicated in which we are its living stones and its living sacrifices. And again, at its inauguration, fire falls from heaven. In the tabernacle and temple, the fire from heaven was never repeated. Likewise, in the book of Acts, the holy flames appear just once, the day the church opens its doors. But what is repeated over and over in this book is what we read about next, verse 4. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit overflowed those who were waiting. God rewarded their faith with a filling of His Spirit. And God will reward your faith with the same. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now understand, the gift of tongues is not a native dialect or a learned language. In fact, it may not even be a known or earthly language. 1 Corinthians 13 mentions the tongues of men and angels. Tongues can be an angelic language. But what is the gift of tongues? Well, when my heart is so full of praise for God that I can't find words to express my love for him, his spirit comes to my rescue. The spirit of God will place words in my mind. I might not know But if I utter those words by faith, trusting the Spirit to make them the exact representation of my feelings, then it provides me a release for all of my pent-up praise. It's like popping the cork on a champagne bottle. Gives you a release. See, God knows all the languages that have ever been spoken, and he refuses to allow anyone who wants to praise him to remain tongue-tied. And so he can put words in our minds that reflect our praise and we can speak them forth and we can receive this wonderful gift and express our praise to God. The gift of tongues is still available to those who ask. And then verse 5 tells us, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, Jews from all over the world were in town now for the feast. And when this sound occurred, that is the rushing wind, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. The wind caught their attention, but the tongue stirred up their imagination. The disciples praised God in a variety of Mediterranean languages so that the visitors recognized the church's praise in their own native tongue. They wondered, how could this be? And note the reversal here. 
In Genesis chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages to scatter the people. Here he brings people together by blessing them with a supernatural ability to speak his praise. In our rebellion, we're dispersed. But in his praise, we can be reunited. And then verse 7, Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? In the streets of Jerusalem that day, visitors were hearing Galilean Jews speak in languages they had no way of knowing. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And notice the content of the tongues, what was spoken. They heard the wonderful works of God. See, this is the gift of tongues. It's always speaking praise to God. It's our praises. If you travel in charismatic circles, you'll hear the terminology, a message in tongues. Well, it's not a biblical phrase. The gift of tongues is not a proclamation from God. It's a praise or prayer to God. Paul states this clearly in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 2. He says, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Prophecy is God speaking to man, but tongues is man speaking to God. Don't get the two confused. And then he says in verse 12, So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, Oh, they're just full of new wine. They're drunk. Skeptics said the disciples were drunk, that they had taken a nip of distilled spirits rather than a dip in God's spirit. And apparently there are some similarities between being drunk and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Unbridled joy, uninhibited expression, unintimidated boldness. Evidently, the effect wine has on the body, the spirit has on the soul. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be intoxicated with God. That's one buzz I really want. Verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea, And all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Now, this is actually funny and a bit revealing, I think. Implied is if if it were 9 p.m., there might be a reason to believe that some of these disciples had hit the sauce. But since it's 9 a.m., I mean, you wouldn't even think it. I mean, not even these rowdy disciples get drunk before breakfast. No, rather than drunk, Peter explains, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel chapter 2. Now understand, these onlookers had seen a spiritual phenomena. But Peter now immediately goes to chapter and verse to explain it. This is what was spoken. In other words, guys, we're by the book here. 
All that the church did and experienced was scriptural. Some charismatic groups will excuse their emotionalism and their sensationalism by saying, hey, more can be cooked up in the kitchen than just what's on the menu. Perhaps you've heard that before. In other words, God won't limit his work to just what's in the Bible. But to me, this is lethal thinking. Make experience, not scripture, your standard And you suddenly open yourself up to deceptive practices, dangerous practices. It's safer to point to chapter and verse as Peter did. Extra biblical experiences can steer us off track. That's why we need to stick to the script. In verse 17, Peter quotes Joel 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. And notice, if Peter thought of his day as the last days... How much more are we justified in applying these words to us? Never let anyone tell you that the power of the, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit have been relegated to the first century and not for today. No, the Spirit moves in the last days. And if anybody's in the last days, we are. For God says, in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. You recall Moses' wish. The power of God's spirit is no longer exclusive to a chosen few. Today, we all can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 19. I will show wonders in heaven above. He continues quoting from Joel. And signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. These are the prophet Joel's images of the last days, of God's last days judgment on the earth. They correspond to what we read about in Revelation 6 through 19. Now remember, Peter is addressing a Jewish audience, and this is what's going to wake up the Jews in the last days. The global cataclysms of the Great Tribulation will combine with the Spirit's outpouring to bring salvation to the Jews. And so he says in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whoever, Jew or Gentile, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that glorious? Whoever. You, you, you're a whoever. You classify as whoever. All you have to do is call upon his name and you can be saved. Then Peter gets real personal. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. Wow. What boldness. I mean, this was Peter who denied the Lord in front of a little girl. Now he stands before the Jews who crucified Jesus and accuses them of murder. Notice, too, how Peter believed in divine sovereignty and human responsibility. 
He says that the crucifixion was the result of God's preordained will and the evil choices of men. Peter holds the Jews accountable, but he also knows that God was behind the scenes working everything out for his purposes. He just makes no effort to reconcile the two views. Peter believes both. Then in verse 24, he continues to speak of Jesus, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Death couldn't hold Jesus. He's the Lord of life. He has the keys to life and death. For David says concerning him, and here he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus' flesh and bone body would never deteriorate. It would never see corruption. Psalm 16, he quotes here, is a biblical prediction of Jesus' resurrection. And then he wraps up the quote. He says, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. He prophesies that Jesus will return to God. And then Peter draws a conclusion. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In other words, David wasn't the one referring to his own resurrection. David wasn't speaking of his own resurrection. David's dead. He's buried. His tomb is well known. No, David foresaw a risen Messiah. And he tells us who he is. Verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. The Jesus they crucified is now sitting at God's right hand and on God's throne in heaven, and he's pouring out the power of the Holy Spirit upon his church. The evidence he's there is what's happening here. That's what Peter's saying. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Peter here is quoting Psalm 110 verse 1. David did not ascend. No one in the Old Testament ascended to heaven until Jesus had paid for our pardon. Their souls went to Hades to wait for the Savior, to lead them into God's presence. And now the coming of God's Spirit here on the day of Pentecost, the other comforter Jesus spoke of, was proof of Jesus' arrival in heaven. Pentecost was evidence that Jesus' sacrifice had been accepted and that he had taken his place on God's throne as Lord of all. Roald Amundsen was a Norwegian explorer. He was the first man to reach the South Pole. 
On one of his expeditions, he took a homing pigeon, and he set it loose when he reached his destination. Imagine his wife's joy when that little bird arrived on her windowsill in Norway. She knew that her husband was alive. His mission was accomplished. And this is the message of Pentecost. The dove of God's spirit said to Jesus' bride, he has reached his destination. He is now on the throne of God and now pouring out his spirit on us. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Again, what boldness on Peter's part. Peter's been hiding now. He's been unwilling to step outside of his living room for fear of the Jews. Suddenly now he's toe-to-toe with the same authorities who engineered Jesus' execution, and he jabs them with the truth. This Jesus whom you crucified. This isn't the same man. What's happened to Peter? Hey, meet the new Peter. What a difference it makes when a person gets filled with the Holy Spirit. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? The Holy Spirit brought a cutting conviction. They they were gripped by their guilt. Verse 38, then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is not for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call what do you do when you're convicted of rejecting Jesus well first you repent You stop resisting and you start following. And then you get baptized. And understand, this is why we reject infant baptism. A baby isn't old enough to repent. And repentance always precedes baptism. Now, some denominations, they use verse 38 here as a proof text for baptismal regeneration. In other words, that you have to be baptized to be saved. Yet examine the whole of Scripture, and this can't be true. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized, and yet he was with Jesus in paradise that very day. Paul also told the Corinthians that he didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Apparently, the two are not the same. Salvation is always by faith in Christ alone. In the New Testament, baptism is never portrayed as essential, but as sequential. See, baptism was a step in the process that early Christians used to identify with Jesus. You repented, you believed, you got baptized, and you were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was all a package deal. You were all in from the start. None of this business of getting saved and then waiting 20 years until you get baptized. No, it was all a package. It all went together. You repented, you believed, you were baptized, you were filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter's phrasing of verse 38 reflects the fact that he sees repentance and baptism as a unit. One naturally followed the other, so why bother to separate them? It's true that in the early church, when you came to Jesus, 
you usually went home wet. You're baptized right then and there. It's been said an unbaptized believer is foreign to the book of Acts. Which then becomes fitting because guess what we're going to do next week? We're going to have a baptism. Right after the second service, we're going to have a baptism. And if you want to be baptized and follow Jesus, I encourage you to come and you'll go home wet next week. How about that? Repent. Stop resisting and start following. Believe. Trust Jesus' intentions for your life. Don't you think he wants good things for you? He says he does. He wants to lead you into green pastures and buy still waters. He wants to do good things in your life. Don't you think he can do better things than you can do? Believe. Trust him. Get baptized. Go on the record. Say to the world that, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus. And then be filled with the Holy Spirit. And receive the power that you need to be the person God's called you to be.